Hello and welcome to the Critic Podcast. This week, Richard Waghorn argues that in the midst of corona fever, the government should look to the spirit of the Blitz and give us less information, not more. Our new pop critic, Sarah Dighton, waxes lyrical about her love of the Pet Shop Boys and explains how TikTok is influencing the creation of music. And our US editor, Oliver Wiseman, gives an update on the race to be the challenger to Donald Trump. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, you're probably not sitting comfortably if you've been following reports of the spread of coronavirus over the last few days and weeks. We're all doomed is the message that's coming over loud and clear, or at least a large number of us are going to, are going to go through a period of great ill health. Uh, with us is Richard Waghorn. Richard, welcome to The Critic Podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. You've written for uh, The Critic Online uh, with a very interesting take on how the government in particular is uh, telling us what they're doing and what we should be doing to combat the coronavirus. It's a general platitude of media relations that the government should say as much uh, as it can and give as much information as possible in a potential crisis situation like this. You think that conventional wisdom may not be correct? Yes, and I think the way you put it actually is, is, is very helpful. If I had to, it's a general platitude now that we need to put out as much information as possible, sometimes perhaps even in real time, almost as soon as it's received, so that the public doesn't panic or if they feel that somebody is in charge of a situation or what have you. I mean, there are different, different variants of this. One is that people need to see, see things being done, which is why we have so many politicians, particularly in high-vis vets so often. And, and the other is that if people receive enough information that they won't begin to panic. But really, what's most striking about, about this school of thought is that it's in complete um, discontinuity with the most successful uh, crisis management operations of the British state and generally speaking Western countries throughout uh, the last number of generations. It was fortuitous when I was writing the article that we 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 uh, we published this this week, but it happened to be the anniversary of the greatest loss of civilian life, it believed, in the United Kingdom during the Second World War. 173 lives lost in one night underground underneath Bethnal Green Underground Station. And, and that tragedy was suppressed almost entirely at, at the time and in the years immediately afterwards on the basis that public morale wouldn't sustain hearing about one horrific event after another if the information was released into the press in the, in the way that it might ordinarily be. And, and this, of course, is how governments down the ages have managed very psychologically and emotionally draining experiences for populations as a whole, whether it's in time of war or it's in time of disease or it's in time of great dissension and great tension among uh, the various parts of a body politic. And it's a very recent and it's a very novel school of thought that we should, we should abandon that attempt to manage the, uh, the psychological well-being of a population in favour of just putting all the information out, regardless of its consequences on how people behave or how people feel. I think that the, the analogy of loss of life in the Second World War is, is an interesting one, but of course... Winston Churchill's government had a great advantage that Boris Johnson's government had, and that is 
Uh, it had a Ministry of Information and it had a, what we might call a, in inverted commas, responsible newspaper uh, media and, and BBC who in a time of wartime wouldn't uh, go against what the Ministry of Information uh, decreed. Now we have social media and Facebook and so on and if the government doesn't take a lead you can be sure that, that other individuals and other forces will do. Surely the government's got no option. Well, this is ultimately government by technology rather than government by the wisdom of men who are reflecting on historical experience. And that's the choice which coronavirus is going to force on government authorities, certainly, but also on the population as a whole. Do we want to be governed essentially by the tyranny of the smartphone, by the tyranny of social media apps and, and all the rest of it, which essentially become the highest authority in the land because we say that they cannot be managed or they cannot be used responsibly or that they preclude recourse to any more, more prudent or more staggered approach to information management, which will be in line with previous, uh, previous successful uh, government efforts in past generations. Or do we say, well, no, that's all well and good, but actually the two levels of which that could be mitigated or that could be altered. Uh, the first level, of course, would be a higher decision a decision in central authority, but actually it's not, a, it's not business as usual right now when the workplace scenarios are such as they have been said to be. So it is legitimate to perhaps maybe restrict or to discourage or perhaps simply to devalorize the irresponsible use of social media. Um, an element of mild but constructive social shame perhaps over uh, spreading panic or irresponsible and, and is is that something that can be done by government or, or or how else would society impose that sense of of shame and responsibility i mean not not to only bring everything back to the second world war but when i hear you ask the question my mind imme immediately goes to posters such as loose lips sink ships mm. or uh, we we know the famous one of course keep calm and carry on but there was a whole wealth of um what, what really could be called the formation of a sensibility in the wider public. Um, it's, it's, a little, it's a little lower than an outright direction or coercion, because to the best of my knowledge, a lot of the public information campaigns were, were just that, information for the public. But it, it not, it's not just data with no intentionality, it's not information with no purpose. It's all organised around the construction of what could be called um, a higher citizen than we might, we might otherwise have before. Now, I suppose when there's no great crisis on, that this sort of stuff becomes redundant, and perhaps it even, it even slightly starts to shade into unhelpful or slightly problematic um, language or ideas around control and all the rest of it. But nevertheless, when we have workcase scenarios such as we do now, it, it is a slightly, um, a slightly more urgent question. And I think perhaps it is legitimate to think about what could be said by ministers, what could be said by the BBC, what could be said by the more responsible aspects of, of the media to encourage good citizenship, to recover, encourage public virtues. And, w and what, what would you suggest should, should be said with that in mind? One of the outstanding virtues of the British people, and I say this as someone who grew up outside of this island and lives here now, one of the great virtues here is a measure of self-restraint, a measure of self-discipline and, I mean, for, for instance, the famous, the famous image for citizens of this country, for so many people around the world, is actually people queuing, because it's something that doesn't happen spontaneously, even in, even in a lot of the rest of uh, Western Europe and even in a lot, a lot of the rest of Western Europe. That's a virtue which could be emphasised and communicated and encouraged. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't amount to any form of control or coercion, 
but it does, it does draw on what's already there, apply it to the situation at hand, and provide people who might be thinking, okay, well, how can I be a responsible citizen in this situation? To use the word patriotism even, what would a patriotic response or what would a, a response with the common good in mind look like in a situation where the NHS might be facing a very difficult few months ahead? It's one of those situations in which, in which I think people are looking for a certain amount of guidance in terms of how they might conduct themselves, not merely at a practical level, but perhaps also, uh, perhaps also a, a, some, a little bit more than that, um, perhaps capability. Um, and I think one of my concerns for an approaching crisis, even if it's in all likelihood a perfectly manageable one, is that the news cycle becomes the enemy of good government and becomes the enemy of public confidence and it becomes the enemy also of that internal disposition among decision makers to act and to communicate a level of authority, a level of assurance, a level of control and a level of decision making that allows difficult decisions perhaps around quarantining or around resource allocation um, or all the rest of those situations that get wargamed when people prepare in the abstract or something like this. It, there's an internal disposition that decision-makers and ministers need to cultivate and they need to have enough confidence to operate out of. Ministers aren't born with this disposition, of course. It's something that had to be cultivated. R Richard, do you feel that there are uh, there is a government in the world that, that's handling this better than, than in Britain at the moment? Um, no, I don't. Although the only thing I would say is the Italian government is slightly belying their national reputation, whether they deserve it or not. Um, the information released seems to be both very accurate and it seems to have avoid, avoided any widespread panic, uh, even in the areas of which have been quite heavily affected. I gather the streets are quite empty, but there doesn't seem to be any any great difficulty. And perhaps if they had the first worked example, so to speak, in Europe, of how to respond when there is a reasonably general, general outbreak, perhaps we should start paying a little bit more attention to them. And I just mentioned that because Italy isn't normally regarded as a a test case of good government in any respect, but I mean, so far they seem to be delivering information in a way that hasn't been driving people into too, too deep a level of fear. Um, so I'll be interested to see how they continue with that in the future, certainly. Well, it's been very interesting talking to you and getting to hear the case for how sometimes in, in communications, less is more. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. A week is a long time in politics, and the last few days have certainly been transformative in US politics. Uh, following Super Tuesday, we've seen the race for the Democrat nomination effectively come down now to two candidates battling it out, Bernie Saunders and Joe Biden. So where did it all go wrong for the money man himself, Mike Bloomberg? To answer these questions, I, I have down the line the uh, US editor of The Critic, Ollie Wiseman, who joins us from Washington, D.C. Ollie, how did it all go wrong for Mike? Yes, well, Mike um, Bloomberg had pinned all his hopes on Super Tuesday in this very unorthodox uh, approach to, to, the, to a Democratic primary where he was going to spend big uh, in these massive Super Tuesday states and essentially ignore the early, early contests. Um, and it's fair to say that that did not uh, go to plan. Uh, all that money... Uh, all that airtime, which you know he's been bombarding all of us with TV ads for, for weeks now, um, and the the trophy that he came out with on the other side of Super Tuesday was was a win in American Samoa, which um, is not exactly um, a delegate rich prize for um, for a presidential uh, candidate. So yes, it went horribly wrong for Bloomberg, um, and I think that really there's two, three sort of three things to explain that. Um, 
that failure. The first is just the simple and kind of reassuring truth that money only gets you so far uh, in politics and you can buy all the airtime you want, but um, you know, what you're selling matters too. Uh, and so that's sort of point number two is as soon as, um, as soon as voters were kind of exposed to um, not the kind of TV ad version of Bloomberg, but the actual man himself, um, who in many ways is an incredibly impressive businessman and, and uh, philanthropist and so on. But, but when he, um, when he went into the cut and thrust of um, the presidential uh, race and came onto the debate stage against um you know, a group of a group of pros who have been doing this every every few weeks for for, for nearly a year now. He um, he really came unstuck. Um, and the third kind of factor, I would say, is really which we can talk about in a second in more depth, is really just um, his failure failure being sort of not actually to do with his own shortcomings, but also just the circumstances. I mean, he uh, his pitch to voters was very much a contractual, transactional one, which was. Look, there's no sensible, viable, reasonable, moderate option. Um, so maybe I should be that option. And you know, we can talk in a second about the stunning return of Biden. But Biden means there is a sensible, moderate option, and so the kind of case for Bloomberg sort of falls apart. Well, it certainly seems the Democrats have got a new comeback kid, a new comeback kid in in Joe Biden, who uh, days before Super Tuesday was was being written off as tired and failing to really engage and excite audiences. Uh, he didn't spend uh, nearly the time nor the money in many of the states he's actually gone on to win. So how is it that he's, uh, he's done so well? Yeah, well, I mean, he's, he's still old. He's probably feeling a lot less tired than he was a week ago. Um, and um, the interesting thing about the Biden comeback is it's both extremely, it's sort of unprecedented and sort of jaw-dropping in its, um, in its speed and, 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 and extent. But it's also exactly what he said he would do all along. He told us that, you know, these early states, these predominantly white um, early states uh, like New Hampshire and Iowa were not his um, not his best best territory. And just wait till South Carolina, where he has a um, he has strong support in the African-American community there. Um, And he did what he said he'd do, which was which was win there. And he he also won by a a huge, huge margin. Um, And then in the kind of three days or two days, whatever it was, between uh, that primary result and Super Tuesday, he basically maximized the momentum out of that result in a a fairly skillful um, and impressive way. Um, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, the other two kind of moderate options in the primary race, both dropped out uh, and endorsed Biden, uh, as did Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who's a he, he was running for president, uh, dropped out a, a while ago. But the point is, there was this real consolidation behind Biden. Um, and, you know, going back to the Bloomberg point, there was really only one option in the eyes of, in the minds of um, voters making their minds up in those days. Um, if you wanted to vote for someone other than Sanders, it became clear, like, Biden was your man. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it makes certain, amount, it sort of makes a certain amount of sense. Um, but, and it sort of seems... Uh, you know, it seems like oh, that makes perfect sense, and that was sort of bound to happen. Um, but it didn't feel like that as it, as it. But it didn't feel like that as it was happening. And um, you know, it was very skillfully executed by 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 Biden and the people around him. What's still not clear to me, though, is what uh, Democrat voters have found to 
like and be inspired by in, in right. Joe Biden that, that they didn't uh, uh, feel um, earlier in this campaign. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, certainly, it's certainly true that it's not like this is built on the back of an amazing debate performance by Biden or some sort of real zinger delivered by him or anything. I mean, he had a all right debate before South Carolina. But I think this primary has always been about how to beat Donald Trump and voters grappling with this question of electability um, and so there's this sort of meta question everyone's engaged in, which is not who do I want to be pre- to be president, but who do I think my neighbors want to be president? Who do I think voters in these crucial states want to be president? And um, essentially, the facts just lined up behind Biden. Um, and I think one of the really impressive things he, he did achieve is, uh, whereas, whereas Bernie Sanders' theory of uh, electability was about a big boost in turnout among younger voters, support among white working class um, voters in important swing states in the Rust Belt. Um, as the primaries have gone on, Sanders has, the facts have been sort of running in the opposite direction. Sanders has not been turning out the vote and building the kind of coalition he, he promised to build. Whereas Biden um, has been doing a really interesting, I mean, Super Tuesday was so interesting because Biden essentially Built, has, is building a very broad electoral coalition that includes loyal support among African-American voters. It includes those white working class voters that Sanders is, claims to be on, on, on his team. Uh, and also it includes a, a really energized seeming, um, more affluent, suburban, um, more moderate, in some cases sort of ex-Republican, anti-Trump vote, um, which you saw in places like Northern Virginia, not far from DC. You sort of, you saw... A huge surge in those kind of um, those kind of those kind of wealthy areas. So that is a that is a very um, electorally formidable coalition to be putting together, um, both in the primary and also more importantly in the general election. Beyond being a Democrat and not being Donald Trump, it's still not clear to me though what uh, Joe Biden brings in terms of policy or, or definition. It seems to me that uh, he appeals to everyone, but it kind of also appeals to no one. Well, yeah, I mean the, the the breadth of his appeal is largely because he has no real substance to his campaign beyond essentially an anti-Trump. We need to beat Trump. We're better than this. Um, uh, kind of message. Now it's easy to t- it's easy to make fun of that as as not having any any substance and so on. But but you know arguably that's the national mood. It's it doesn't feel like a year in which Americans want to choose between socialism and Trumpism, and it, which would what is what a Sanders Trump election looks like. It feels like a re- it feels like a year in which they want a referendum on on Trump and the Trump style of politics and the Trump um, approach to things. Um, that's not to say, you know, that's not to take a side necessarily in that. I'm just, I'm just making the point that that is the kind of thing that America feels like America is grappling with, um, and I think tr- in many ways Biden is kind of meeting the mood there um, in a way that Sanders maybe isn't. This is a race which thus far clearly hasn't just been about the money. If it had been, Mike Bloomberg would be far ahead. Uh, but have we now reached the stage in the contest where money? does start to matter and is this the point where those uh, are going to swing by those with money are going to swing behind biden and give him a clear edge against uh, bernie sanders yeah i think we probably have up until now i mean it's worth saying that um you know bernie spends a lot of time talking about who's funding various candidates and even though he he pay, paints tries to paint biden as someone who takes money from billionaires um bernie's bernie is 
the man with more or has until now been the man with more money, um, a much more formidable operation. Uh, I think, as you said, um, Biden has Bi- Biden won some states where he had zero employees and had spent almost nothing on TV advertising, um, you know, had no ground game. Um, so. A, it's a lesson in money is not everything, um, both in, in Bernie and Bloomberg's cases. Um, on what will happen money-wise going forwards, um, Bernie's got a very loyal um, loyal um, following who will give in. It's a very impressive operation, you know, small-scale donations that add up to very big numbers. And I think that, um, you know, we'll see the numbers after, after they come out, um, when they next come out. But I think that that loyal support won't be going anywhere. But Biden will will raise a huge amount of money now off the back of his his status as um, as moderate option and sort of you know front runner against Bernie. Um, Bloomberg, it's worth saying, although he's dropped out of the race, he is um, committed to supporting um, in a very big way um, Biden in the general against Trump if it is Biden, and he has left open the possibility of. Um, if it's needed, of 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 bank rolling Biden in the um, in the primary against Bernie too. Um, I mean, interestingly, Bloomberg built this huge campaign team up um, across various swing states and so on um, ahead of the ahead of the primary, um, and he's actually retaining a lot of those people. That team is staying there, and they basically stand ready to help um, the Democratic nominee. Now it's complicated with campaign finance laws. You know, a lot of that will just be spent. Um, you know, attacking Trump um, rather than explicitly cooperating, but nonetheless, I think um, in a general where the Republicans are very have got a, have got a huge uh, amount of money already raised ahead of the ahead of the re-election race. Um, you know, Bloomberg's role as 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 a as a funder is is hugely important. It, it, it suddenly seems Biden has got the wind in his sails. Is is he now a, a shoe in for the nomination? Yeah, I mean, well, we've been surprised sort of several times already in this in this race, so it'd be silly to kind of to, to declare it over now. Um, certainly, um, certainly, it would be a big twist if Sanders kind of t- flips the script uh, again. Um, um, and, and I think it's fair to call Biden the, the kind of strong front runner. Um, there's a there's a there's a batch of um, states voting next Tuesday. Uh, including Michigan, which is a big and important state, um, and is kind of going to be a tight contest. So, you know, it's if Biden does well next week, he can really like he can really he can really finish Sanders off. But um, but I think at the moment it's it's, it's too it's too it's too soon to call it uh, certainly. Well, the finishing post is still not remotely in sight then, but uh, Ollie Wiseman in Washington D.C. Lovely talking to you, and we'll pick up on this again soon. Okay, thanks, Graham. I'm now with the pop critic of The Critic magazine, Sarah Dytum. Sarah, welcome to The Critic podcast. Very lovely of you to have me. Uh, Sarah, it strikes me there's never been a more difficult time to be a critic of pop music. Uh, When I was a lad, um, some time ago... Uh, there were very clear trends and tribes in pop music and the uh, journalists of that period were able to uh, wear their interests on their lapels and, and, and really place their narrative within these, these strong movements in pop. 
There aren't movements in pop now, are there? No, I think everything is very mixed up, both in terms of culture and in terms of time. So I have got two teenage children and the nature of the way they listen to pop music is much less. So my listening was very much dictated by what's on the radio, um, what is being reviewed in the music press, because I was an obsessive reader of the enemy and Melody Maker and like you know sundry monthly magazines that don't exist anymore because there's you know there's also never been a harder time just to be a journalist generally um whereas for my children what they listen to is like what surfaces on tiktok um what which is a, a popular social media network thank you for pointing that out <laughs> your readers may, may or may not have um invested their time in at this point um, so on tiktok um like loads of stuff, I, I hear loads of snippets of song coming out of my daughter's bedroom because like 30 second clips get excerpted and then turned into the basis of a dance. And then all these teenage girls all around the world are you know, doing this dance to a song that might be like 10, 15 years ago at the moment. Um, my daughter is um, like obsessively trying to nail the routine to a song called Cannibal by Keisha um, which I was like I never expected that to be what I heard coming out of your room um, so there is this mixing but it's like this it's exciting and there is no kind of boundary really to stop you from accessing whatever you're interested in as long as it exists on a streaming service somewhere which not everything does um i spent loads of my pop listening childhood going through you know dusty crates of records and digging out foreign issue cd singles because i had to have that one b-side that you couldn't get anywhere else that was inevitably horrendous (laughs) um my kids do not have to deal with that um so, you know, if they want to listen to, for example, The Strokes obsessively, they don't have to delve through my collection. They just, you know, fire it up on Spotify and go for it. But is this why pop music isn't moving forward? Because we're all now archaeologists digging up fragments of the past rather than thinking of something new to do? Oh, it's interesting that you think it's not moving forwards. I mean, I don't know if it's moving forwards. I'm nearly 40, so I don't... <laughs> don't really I get to have a say on what what is or isn't moving forwards um I don't think that's true but I think like any medium if you have a big um shake-up of the media that stuff exists on and it provides new ways of accessing like whatever the um media is that you're talking about it produces creativity, it produces new ways of doing things. So um, with cinema, you have the like 90s wave of directors who were really strongly influenced by stuff being available on um, VHS and who made films that were not just influenced by what they could access on VHS that had never previously been available in that way, but who also made films that were shaped by the experience of watching on VHS. So who, you know, for like obviously Quentin Tarantino is the big, big example of this. He's someone whose taste was formed in an environment where rather than having to wait for a revival to come around at a cinema, you just, you know, head down to Blockbuster, 
pile your basket up with a bunch of Nouvelle Vague movies and then you go home and you rewind and rewatch the bits that you're interested in until you've meticulously rinsed them for everything that you care about. And that leads to the aesthetic of his films, this, you know, like very rewatchable, very punchy, very in-jokey, extremely cinema literate stuff. And it's directly related to the way that the media changed. Same stuff happens to pop music all of the time. So the shift to streaming is definitely forming new kinds of creativity, new kinds of making stuff. Um, the kind of experience that I was talking about my daughter having of pop music on TikTok and it being really condensed to these very small snippets of sound, that's absolutely an influence on the way that people make music and the way that music like refilters back into the system. 40 years ago, uh, the Buggles asked the big question, <laughs> uh, video kills the radio mm. star. Um, they were a bit ahead of their time because obviously the 80s was a, a very video-focused uh, decade and, and, and pop music was, was alive and well. Um, now, though, I wonder if, if the Buggles weren't the great prophets of pop music because with YouTube and TikTok mm. and, uh, and so on, uh, so much of, of the platforms upon which people listen to music are, are primarily visual. Yeah. Uh, how has that changed uh, the, the, the medium? It's completely changed the nature of stardom, I think. So it's now very, very unusual to have a big interview with a pop star. And it's even more unusual to have a big meaty interview with a pop star. Because why should they prostrate themselves to the media and have to answer difficult questions? when you can just you know create an Instagram post and you've got immediate access to your fans who actually like you and are not going to ask you hard questions are going to want to see you do well so it is um yeah I miss the pop video actually I miss the big event pop video I still get quite excited when the few stars who are in a position to make a big deal out of the video like the Beyonce albums that came down, that came out as you know essentially parallel films mm. as well I was delighted by that because it was you know able to get my eyeballs around big meaty pop visuals and I think you know there was this period again in the 90s my time when you had this incredible crossover with people like um, Chris Cunningham and David Fincher who were making these ridiculous pop videos like astounding stuff and they were not only you know their own aesthetic but their part, they were the construction of the stars who they were working with. So like the human nature video, which I think Fincher did for Madonna, was like absolutely stunning piece of work, not only in terms of representing the song, but in terms of establishing like who is Madonna at this point in her career? How are we supposed to look at her? How is she inviting us to treat her as a star? Now stars they still have to craft their persona in the same way but it's both a smaller deal so it's less reliant on doing those big one-shot videos that present you as who you want to be but it's a more overwhelming deal because it's this constant you know tweets instagram posts always being present always being available stardom looks you know in this era stardom looks completely knackering and 
I fully sympathise with someone like um, songwriter and performer Sire, who has just made this big deal out of opting out entirely and, you know, sends surrogates to events in her stead and tries not to show her face. It's like it's a gimmick. Everyone, you know, pop music is full of gimmicks, but it's a very laudable gimmick, given all the, you know, pulling on you that takes place. Uh, One of the... um trends that I certainly didn't foresee until I was whacked in the face by it <laughs> is K-pop. Oh, How yeah. much further has, 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 has this nonsense got to go? <laughs> so I should confess that K-pop is not really one of my things. So it's something that I'm, I'm like aware of, right. but I've never really invested the time in getting to know it. It's an incredibly full-on scene. Um, both, I mean, the K-pop fans are exhausting <laughs> I think in the nicest possible way um, and however much I was talking about the you know strains of being a pop star if you're a pop star on the k-pop scene that is exponentially vaster um, but it's very interesting that there are these like localized pop scenes in an international market you still get these localized scenes that have very much their own culture their own environment their own star system and there's incredible intensity of engagement from the people who love that music and those stars um a lot of the k-pop scene is obviously very teen orientated Mm. and that reminds me of a period in the mid-1970s where if you go back and look at top of the pops for example during that period a lot of the acts were were aimed at people record buying people between the ages of about nine and 14 Mm. by by this and then of course the uh, punk came along and, and and the world was was shaken up again it it strikes me we're going through something similar to that again with, with K-pop. It's rather kind of candy pop. Yeah. Um, what has happened to leather and denim hard rock? <laughs> well, it still exists. And I kind of, I take quite a Catholic view when I talk about pop music. I basically mean anything that isn't going to touch the classical or the opera columns in the magazine, I am kind of hoarding into my purview like a greedy golem making it all my own. Um, so in terms of, I mean, when you say leather and denim hard rock, do you mean metal? Do you mean... Yeah, you know, uh, um, I, I mean men with long hair uh, who have taken no effort to produce a, a cutesy video. Yeah. Uh, banging out hits into a microphone. Oh, they're out there. So um, the Hold Steady are probably my favourite current band along that line, and they are very much like rough and ready, spit and sawdust, strongly Bruce Springsteen-influenced. Yeah, it's there. I think I kind of, in terms of my own musical taste, like I think very annoyingly if you live with me, but I tend to pivot between stuff intensely high gloss um max martin style pop music you know britney spears is my queen and things that were made in a bin in seattle at some point that just sound like someone dropping a drum down the stairs um so i um, will yes be covering both of those right <laughs> horrible that, 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 that's a reasonable spread I, yeah. i'm just wondering if there's any middle ground in, in between there? these two um do you know i was thinking about this because i was asked if i would review a book about trent Reznor of nine inch nails recently and i had to kind of confess that i never really got into nine inch nails not because it was sort of too extreme or too heavy but because he's a really good producer so it always sounded a bit too nice <laughs> so 
<laughs> I don't know if I am equipped to cover the middle ground between rocky and competent, but I'm willing to experiment. I'm willing to explore that space. A duo who have uh, managed to survive through the decades are, of course, Pet Shop Boys. Mm. Uh, their new album is just out. Uh, is it a return to form or have they moved on to something new? I think it's a very Pet Shop Boys album and everything they do is very Pet Shop Boys album. As an album as a whole, I haven't fallen completely in love with it. There are a couple of songs that I really like, which I mentioned when I was writing about them in the column for the most recent issue. Um, but I think my listening to that album is essentially going to be putting those songs on playlists and enjoying them as they come up rather than the album as a work. But nah, that's pop music right it's about singles <laughs> but a, a lot of pop music by its nature is rooted in in the moment and in, in its period to me the pet shop boys for all their longevity are actually yeah. about 1980s um opportunities is almost a, a, an anthem for, for the 1980s yeah. um but and yet here they are still going they, they seem to me relevant to the 1980s I, i'm glad they're 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 still performing but mm. but are they relevant to now i think well, I just love them, so I don't really care whether they're relevant or not. But I think what they have done as an act is they have established an aesthetic and a style that is so incredibly them. Um, so there's... Um, I don't know if you are a fan of Flight of the Concords, but yes. 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 Um, and they have their Pet Shop Boys parody, Inner City Pressure, um, which is... Um, so the thing about Flight of the Concords is that they are incredible songwriters. So they have done this incredible parody of a Pet Shop Boys song. But it just sounds like a really good Pet Shop Boys song because mm. the Pet Shop Boys themselves are so, like, so much themselves, so entirely committed to their aesthetic that they are basically skirting along the fringes of parody constantly anyway. And that is kind of what I deathlessly love about them, is that they are always in this place of being so entirely committed to something ridiculous that the absurdity turns into sincerity and you will be, you know, feeling terribly ironical and smug and enjoying some very clever bit of wordplay while listening to them. And then all of a sudden your sort of heart will drop out of your chest and be broken on the floor in front of you because they've said something about heartbreak and loss or grief that is intensely recognisable. Certainly they are um, a group or duo, I suppose you should call them, where they, they manage to focus a lot on their lyrics. To me, Pet Shop Boys always sound like no Coward put to, a, mm. put to an upbeat uh, backing track. Yeah. Um, not least because there's a bittersweet quality yeah. to what they're saying. And, they and, and that, that does, I think, mark them out as not unique, but, but different to mm. a, a lot of uh, what's, what's going on now. Yeah, I think very much doing their own thing. Although um, there are, um, there's a collaboration with um, Bastille, I think, on this new album, which is, again, like their tradition of collaboration is incredibly deep-rooted in everything that they've done and they've always been enormously canny in terms of both who they've plucked out of pop past mm. and who they've chosen from the present to work with mm -hmm. so Bastille are like very much in Pet Shop Boys vein of you know clever pop like mm -hmm. clever heartfelt pop um 
like obviously the collaboration that is the best and the greatest is the Dusty Springfield one, yes. which yeah. is absolutely perfect and impeccable. And, and must have been shortly before she died as well. Yeah, it was. Mm. Um, yeah, there was something very lovely about it because obviously her career had hit the doldrums mm. um, essentially because of her being outed. Or mm. um, I can't remember if she was outed or if she chose to out herself. But at the time it happened, it was you know probably much of a muchness anyway. Mm. Um, so she had not really been active at all, and then they um, chose. I think they had to push quite hard to work with her as well. They were being guided in another direction, and they were like, "No, we really, really want to work with her and not anybody else." And the music they turned out was like absolutely superb and like such a wonderful summation of a career that would otherwise have ended you know in completely undeserved not failure but Mm. you know she should not have reached the end of her life without having you know another massive hit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well with the prospect of cheerful profundity uh, (laughs) ringing in our ears uh, we will have to uh, reach the end of our, our mixer tape um, uh, right now. But Sarah Dighton, pop columnist for The Critic, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, but why not get The Critic in print? Right now we're offering three issues for just £5. Go to thecritic.co.uk for details.